Hello everyone, I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina, welcome to The Grim Curriculum. So first things first, we're just gonna let you know ahead of time that today's episode is gonna be a little bit different to what we've done in the past. Today we are not covering the story of a killer. We are going to be talking about survival against all odds, and with that being said, we want to warn all of you that today's episode may be incredibly difficult to listen to. It is a story of extreme violence and evil. Today we're covering the story of Mary Vincent. What happened to Mary Vincent was beyond imagination, but we truly believe that the story is one that absolutely needs to be heard. She is an incredibly brave woman and serves as an advocate and inspiration to many. So with all that said, let's get to the survival tale of Mary Vincent, who at only 15 years old was brutally assaulted and left for dead, only to somehow manage to fight for her life and eventually identify her attacker. Her story didn't end there either. What happened after her attacker was sentenced will shock you. We ready for this one? As ready as I'll ever be. (laughs) Mary Vincent was only 15 when her attack took place. It seems like overall her childhood was not the greatest. She came from a military family and her parents were pretty strict. It seems like she may have moved around a fair bit on top of all of that. She's one of seven kids, so it was a pretty big family that they had. The family settled in Las Vegas, but her parents would soon divorce. By most accounts, it seems like she was pretty scared of her dad and her sister would tell her to run when he was in a bad mood because of his migraines. It probably doesn't surprise any of you that a 15-year-old in a setting like this would start to rebel. Mary eventually started skipping school, running away, and even leaving town with her boyfriend. Her and her boyfriend actually lived out of his car for a while, but she also slept basically wherever she could. She stayed on the streets, and she even slept behind dumpsters. She really didn't want to be back home. Her parents were constantly fighting, and she didn't feel safe there at all. About this, she said, I left home to save my life. It wasn't to seek wild times. I didn't know anything about the world or the opposite sex. And she was absolutely right. Mary and her boyfriend lived out of his car for the summer, but he was eventually arrested on charges of sexual assault towards another teenage girl. Yikes. And after all of this, she headed south to live with her uncle for a little bit, but she really wanted to see her grandfather. So we want to preface this by saying it was a very different time in the 70s. In 1978, was pretty common to hitchhike. It was just a way that people, especially young people, got around. Like, you would stand at the road, sometimes with a sign that stated where you wanted to go, and you'd hold your thumb up and wait for someone to offer you a ride. Sometimes you would get a ride the entire way, and other times the driver would just drop you off as far as they could, and you would have to find another ride for yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I fully understand and respect that this was a different time, but I just can't imagine this level of, like, trust when it comes to a strange ride. Like... The idea of hitchhiking, like, especially as a woman, it just horrifies me. I'm not going to lie to you. Like, sometimes I don't even feel super comfortable getting into a cab or, like, an Uber, right? And, like, I'm super awkward. I don't like strangers. So this, like, right away just makes me so uncomfortable. And I was curious, so I looked it up. And hitchhiking is actually illegal in Canada, and you can get a $65 fine. It isn't legal in most places in the U.S. either. I completely agree with you about the hitchhiking. Like, I would I would rather walk hundreds of miles than ever, right? ever get into a stranger's vehicle. No. I mean, obviously, it's a different time now, like we said. But, like, the amount of serial killers that pick up hitchhikers, like, Oh, and, and this was them. peak time, too. Oh, like, that's the scary thing. Like Totally. I don't even feel comfortable, like, genuinely, like, getting in an Uber or taxi. No. I'm pretty awkward in, in real life, so, like, I don't like talking to strangers. But then, like, the added level on top of, like, being a female and being in a vehicle with a strange man, like, it makes me very uncomfortable. 
Yeah, no, and I get that this was kind of just, like, what they did, and it's a different time now. Yeah, like, not everyone had a car in those days, but like I said, I get a bicycle or just walk. No, thank you. But either way, she hitchhiked. She ended up making it safely to her grandfather's house, but eventually she began to miss her family, so she decided she would try to head back home. She waited for her grandfather to leave, and she went to go look for a ride home to Las Vegas. The first part of her trek home was pretty uneventful, and she managed to get a ride from LA to Modesto, California, which was a little over four hours away by car. At this point, she needed to go further south, so she attempted to find another ride along the highway. She wasn't alone at this point either. She had two other hitchhikers with her that were both pretty young as well. She didn't know them or anything, but they all got together to look for a ride, and they had signs that they made that indicated as such. There weren't many cars on the road that day, and no one was really stopping for them. Eventually, a light blue van drove past them and stopped. Inside the van, there was only one passenger. The three hitchhikers at this point probably felt somewhat optimistic that they were finally going to get a ride. The driver was a man in his 50s who seemed relatively disarming at first. He pulled over about 15 feet away from the trio and waited. Mary ran up to the van by herself to talk to the man to see if he could give the three of them a ride. He said to her that he couldn't give all three of them a ride, but he could drive her. Right away, this struck Mary as strange. She could see inside the van, and there was a ton of room available, certainly enough to fit the three of them. But he adamantly told her that he could only give her a ride, and if she wanted one, that she could take it or leave it. The three of them were all going to pretty much the same place too, so it just didn't make sense to her, but he wouldn't budge, and he refused to accept the other two passengers. Eventually, Mary accepted this, and she ran back to the other two hitchhikers to tell them that she was leaving and to grab her things. Obviously, a giant red flag of a situation. They told her not to go with him because it didn't really make sense that he wouldn't take all three of them when he clearly had the ability to. Mary agreed with them that it sure seemed strange. However, Mary missed her family. She wanted to be home and she was pretty desperate for all of this to be over so she could see them again. Not a lot of people had been willing to stop at this point and she had no clue when she would get another offer for a ride. So she said goodbye to her new friends and got into the van. The man began driving and eventually told her that his name was Lawrence Singleton and that he was 50. He also told her that he had a daughter that was her age and that her name was Deborah. The first part of the drive was incredibly uneventful. Mary and Lawrence engaged in some small conversation and at this point she'd kind of forgotten about her earlier apprehensions about this man. At this point of the ride, other than the initial pickup, there were no real red flags or alarm bells going off for Mary. The only thing that kind of stood out to her at this point was that she sneezed, and immediately he reached over to feel her neck, and he asked her if she was sick. Like, that's so creepy. Like, sir, I am 15, you are 50, remove your hands from me this instant. Don't touch people, like, personal bubble. This is one of the things that makes hitchhiking so scary for me. I mean, at this point, like, he's touching her neck and he's asking if she's feeling... Like, what do you do? No, What do you do? Like, do you ask to get out? Like, what if he doesn't let you get out? Like, don't... Just don't get into cars with strangers. Don't do it. Don't do it. In fact, she even stated later that she was pretty disarmed by this point and he reminded her a lot of her grandfather, so she felt like she could trust him. She trusted him enough that when she began to get sleepy, which was pretty quickly... She asked him if he would mind if she took a short nap, which he replied, no. Of course he didn't mind. And I hate this with every fiber of my being. And we haven't even gotten into much of the story yet. Like, honestly, it's like watching a movie and you're wanting to scream at the TV because you know what's about to happen and you want to stop it and you can't stop it. It, It's horrifying. It genuinely makes me feel kind of nauseous. Yeah, it makes me sick. Like, it's just like you want to just help. Yeah. Mary curled up in the car seat and dozed off for a little bit. 
When she woke up, she noticed something was wrong. They were very clearly driving in the wrong direction. She immediately pointed this out to Lawrence, and she was incredibly assertive at this point. He apologized, and he told her that he made a mistake and that he didn't realize it. He did turn the van around, and he began to head in the correct direction. It wasn't like he had just turned the wrong way. It was pretty obvious to Mary at this point that he had been traveling this way for quite a while. She was incredibly uncomfortable now. She knew she didn't want to upset Lawrence or make it feel like something was wrong, so she didn't say much to him after that. He told her that he was just an honest man who made a mistake, but overall, he stayed calm. Eventually, they found themselves along a stretch of highway that was heavily forested. Lawrence told her that he needed to get out and relieve himself. Something interesting that she remembers about this was that when he was pulling over, she looked down and she saw that she needed to tie one of her shoes. She had this thought in her head that was incredibly important to make sure that her shoes were properly tied. At this point, the alarm bells are ringing for Mary. Every single bit of comfort that she had during the initial part of this drive is now completely gone and she's fully prepared to run if she has to. But she doesn't want him to know that she's feeling this way, so she leaves her shoe alone and decides that she is going to get out of the van and tie it once they stop. Lawrence ended up pulling up into a very isolated access road, which really worried Mary because at this point, none of this is okay. She's fully aware that the situation she has found herself in is a very, very dangerous one. I can't even begin to imagine the tension. She's too scared to say anything. He isn't talking. They're both just kind of waiting for something to happen. It's like that point in the horror movie where like the strong female, it's like in Scream where she's like finally figured out like, oh shit, yeah. my friends are the killers, but yeah. you're like trying to be cool about it. Ugh. He continued to drive down the road a little bit and eventually stopped the van and got out. Mary got out of the car and began to tie her shoe. Almost immediately, she felt something hit her very hard in the back of the head, and she lost consciousness. As soon as Lawrence had gotten out of the car, he made his way around towards Mary. He hit her over the head with a hammer that he had had in his van, knocking her out almost instantly. We want to very quickly remind all of you that this is a survivor story. Mary survived everything that we are about to talk about, but that doesn't make it any easier to hear. This is quite likely one of the worst things we have ever talked about on this podcast. And we also want to remind you that we do have some palate cleanser episodes to listen to afterwards if you'd yeah. like to try and forget and kind of think about some happier, sillier yeah. things. And we wouldn't really blame you at all. This story is about to take a turn that is absolutely beyond words. Okay, so with that said, back to it. Mary woke up in the van. When she attempted to get up, she realized that Lawrence had tied her up. Soon after she realized this, he returned. Last chance, guys. If you want to skip ahead a few minutes, we do not blame you. Lawrence Singleton began to sexually assault Mary numerous times and in numerous ways. We're not going to get into the details of attack. It's out there if you want to read it, but it was horrific. This brutality continued throughout the entire night. And there have been a few times throughout the history of this podcast where we have talked about very evil people doing terrible things, but to me, this is just beyond comprehension. He did all of this despite the fact that she was begging for him to stop. He just ignored her. Not only did he ignore her, but he literally told her if she screamed or didn't do exactly what he told her, he would kill her. When he was finally finished, he got back into the front seat of the van and fell asleep. Mary was still naked and tied up at this point, unable to escape him. Not to mention the horrible fact that the extent of her injuries at this point was already incredibly severe. She couldn't do anything other than wait for him to wake up. He eventually did wake up and he drove the van towards the main road. 
but then he turned down another unmarked road. Not good. He parked the van near a canyon and opened the van doors. Mary was still pleading for him to let her go. He did not let her go. Instead, he continued to assault her for hours until morning. At some point, he also made her drink an unknown substance that she assumed was alcohol because it made her pass out for a little bit. When he was finally finished, he cut the ropes that he had tied her up with. He stood her up. She begged him to set her free, and he said something to her that will continue to haunt me. You want to be free? I'll set you free. Lawrence Singleton took an axe and chopped off Mary's left arm below her elbow in three strokes of the axe. He continued to hold her down, and he grabbed her right arm and chopped it off in two strokes. In Mary's words, He took my left arm and took one swing, and I started to fall, and then he took another swing, and I grabbed his arm, grabbed it real tight, and I couldn't figure it out, holding him real tight on his arm, but I'm still falling. Something really horrifying that we want to point out is that at some point, she was able to look up at him. She saw that he was trying to flick and brush something off of his arm. To her horror, she saw that her arm was still attached to his. Her hand was still clutching onto his arm despite the fact it was no longer attached to her body. That is horrifying. Like, oh my god. That just, like, that makes me want to just curl up into a ball and pretend things like this don't happen if, in real life. If I hadn't already given up at life at this, this point, this, this, would, this would have been the final straw. My soul would have left my body. Yeah. Goodbye. Yeah, definitely. After brutally hacking off her limbs... He threw Mary over a railing, over 30 feet down into a culvert, saying, Okay, now you're free. And there he left her to die. But this was not the end of Mary's story. Because Mary has the soul of a fucking warrior, and she was not ready to die. The angel of death came to her that day, and she was like, nah. Seriously, like, think about it. Yeah. Even at this point, the fact that she is alive is an absolute miracle. This Poor girl. And to remind you guys, she's 15 15. years old. A baby. She's gone through so much shit, and at this point, she is still fighting. To try and stop the bleeding, Mary packed clumps of mud into the stumps of her arms. She kept her arms raised in the air to further prevent blood loss and, according to court transcripts, to keep her muscles from falling out. Not only would I have never thought to pack the wounds with mud, I don't even know that I would have had the strength to pick myself off the ground after this absolute hellish nightmare that she had already endured. Like... No. I... I it's it's so much. Like, this... Like, just think about the... Uh, like. First of all, how much can a human body go through before it's just, like, done? I think, you know, it's it's crazy because you look back to, like, World War II, for example. There was a story of this, like, German soldier that had been shot something, like, 21 times. He was blinded and he still continued to fight. You look at someone like that and you're like, that man should have died. And Mary yep. Yep. went through something equally as harrowing. And then some people literally slip on a banana peel and that that's it for them it's like a, it's adrenaline it's that crazy just will it, to survive and i think really that is, is like a very primal primal instinct totally that point. It, it has to be instinctual yeah. mary said that the reason she was able to push herself to keep going despite all the odds against her was that she would be able to identify her attacker and prevent him from hurting anyone else she said he threw me off a cliff i should have broken bones i should have bled to death I didn't, and I never passed out. I remember everything. I wanted to give up and go to sleep, but I felt someone there with me, a presence who wanted me to survive. A voice told me to get up and get help, or someone else would die. 
When she finally made it to the road after spending hours scrambling up the side of the steep drop-off... With no arms. With no arms. She then walked three miles until she was able to find someone who was able to help her. Three motherfucking miles. Three miles. Jesus. It wasn't even the first car that she came across that was finally able to help her. The first car that drove past her carried two guys who quickly sped off once her condition came into view. And honestly, who could blame them? She, like, they probably thought they had come across a zombie at right? that point. Right? Like, what, your mind can't process no. that. She was completely nude, and she was missing both arms. Mary said that later that she was holding both of her arms up so, and I quote, the muscles and blood wouldn't fall out. So, a horrifying image. Like, especially when you're, like, doop-doop, driving along the road in California, having a good day. Listening to, what, like, the Beach Boys? Oh, probably. Like, just like that. And Rocking then you out. see, like, that is, like... A and then literally a zombie. Like, that is a scene from The Walking Dead. It's horrifying. Absolutely. It's horrifying. And I think even Mary said after the fact that she didn't really blame no, she, them. No, she did say that, yeah. She's like, I understand why they didn't stop. <laughs> it was the second vehicle carrying a couple who were vacationing together that finally stopped for her. They wrapped her up in towels and they drove her to an airport to call an ambulance. Don't forget, this was the 70s. People just didn't have cell phones in those days. And Mary was then airlifted to a hospital. In the hospital, she would not allow herself to rest for even a second and insisted that the police take her statement. Mary was able to describe Singleton so accurately to a police sketch artist that he was turned in very quickly. Joanne Eversole, a San Pablo, California housewife who loved bowling, instantly recognized the sketch as her longtime friend and neighbor, Larry Singleton. The sketch was so on point that Joanne didn't even hesitate to turn him in. Singleton, the evil scumbag that he is, he insisted that Mary was just a prostitute and that he had been framed by another man with the same name. He claimed that there were two other hitchhikers in his van the night of the attack and that one of them, the other Larry, was responsible, not him. He even said that when he was passed out drunk, the other Larry did all of this. He's so stupid. Like, this this man pisses me off. You, you, you couldn't even, like, come up with another name. Like, it wasn't me. It was, oh, uh, It was a different Larry, Larry in the car. Like, and it's pretty ironic that he says, oh, yeah, there were two other hitchhikers in the van when he hadn't let two other hitchhikers in the van in the first place. He's such a He's such a dick. So even though his van was full of physical evidence, he kept insisting that they had the wrong guy. Like the audacity of this guy. He's oh such God. an asshole. Still a teenager at the trial, Mary testified against Singleton wearing her prosthetic arms. At no point would she ever mention him by name. She still refuses to call him anything but her attacker. She ended up avoiding him for the majority of the trial, but at the very end she had to walk past him as they were leaving the courtroom. He looked at her and he whispered, I'll finish this job if it takes me the rest of my life. Absolute scum of the earth. She ran out of the courtroom and later she told her lawyers what he had said. The jury at the trial wasn't convinced of Larry's case of mistaken identity. In March of 1979, the San Diego jury found him guilty on charges including attempted murder, rape, and a series of other equally heinous crimes. Unfortunately, even though Singleton was found guilty, he would only receive a sentence of 14 years in San Quentin prison. At this time, it was the absolute maximum he was able to receive. The judge who presided over the case said, If I had the power, I would send him to prison for the rest of his natural life. 
This is exactly why the law needs to be adapted when it's needed. This makes literally no sense to me. You have people serving life sentences with no parole for marijuana possessions. And, and then you have this absolute asshole of a man and you're only able to sentence him to 14 years. And if you aren't absolutely fuming at this point, this next bit is definitely gonna set you over the edge. Lawrence Singleton only served eight years of his 14 year sentence for good behavior. Even though more than one psychiatrist at San Quentin had reported that he was a paranoid personality, severe schizoid, and capable of angry and destructive outbursts on those weaker than he. Even his own daughter was terrified of him. She begged authorities not to let him out of prison, but they said there was nothing they could do. She feared for her own life because he had been abusive to herself and her mother. When authorities suggested filing a restraining order, she was basically like, what's that supposed to do? In fact, it lets him know where I am. She did end up changing her last name to distance herself from him even more. That is so frustrating. Oh, man. That's so, so, like, he's only served just over half of his original sentence of 14 years. Eight years. We talked a lot about the potential of redemption and reform in the last episode, and while that was a bit of a debate, I think we can all agree here that there's absolutely no way that this man could ever come back from something like this and be considered a good person. Someone who does something like this does not belong on the streets. No. It's bad enough that they could only sentence him to 14 years, but... The fact that they let him out after eight is just a slap in the face. And also, he straight up told her to her face that he was going to kill her if it was the last thing that he, he was like, hey, I'm going to kill you. In the courtroom. In the courtroom. At his trial. Exactly. Like, how the Like, he... What? How did he no. get away with that shit? Like, it makes no sense. Another thing to note is that Mary ended up winning a $2.56 million civil judgment against him, but she wasn't able to get anything, not one cent, because old Lawrence had no job and had $200 saved. She got absolutely nothing out of this. The whole thing is infuriating. What's even more infuriating is that he went on to kill someone after his release for good behavior. Yep, you heard it right. In 1987, he was paroled in Contra Costa County, but no town would have him. They refused to allow him into their communities. Because of this, he would serve out the rest of his parole living in a trailer on the grounds of San Quentin Prison. The singleton was so hated in California for the attack on Mary Vincent that he was basically unable to settle anywhere after being released. People would literally protest whenever they found out that he was thinking of moving to their area. And you know what this reminds me of? Hmm. A few years ago, uh, so we are recording from Edmonton, Alberta, and a few years ago, Carla Homolka considered oh, moving yes. to, I believe it was like St. Albert or like Calgary. I something to remember this and like people just flipped yes. out and protested it and now carla homolka does not live here because oh my god i would not want to live fuck can you life. imagine running into carla homolka like sobeys <sighs> buying her bread like i oh i mm, mm. this is a little off topic and i'm but I'm going to say it anyway. I actually saw um, an article fairly recently that um, basically, long story short, there was a Facebook mom group for moms that had just had babies and stuff, a little community so they can talk about their issues. They got real tight knit. So they were sending each other things in the mail. And one day, one of the ladies from it posted something along the lines of, you never know who someone really is. <sighs> and like all the moms were like, what the fuck is this about? Turned out one of the moms in the chat was Carla Homolka under a different name. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh and my god! The lady that was like telling the story was like, 
she had our address, like, because we had been sending stuff to each other. And she, like, tried to apologize and be like, oh, I I never meant for this. But it's like, I'm sorry. When you... You're Carla Hamolka, Yeah, you don't get to be sneaky inside a mom's Facebook group. We're not having mimosas with Carla Hamolka at PTA meeting. She was, like, a part of her, like, PTA team. And and they soon saw that that was not going to be a thing anymore. absolutely Basically, yeah, Larry tried to move to several different towns. And every time they were like, "Mm mm-mm, sorry, Larry, you're not coming in here. Good. People really didn't want to be anywhere near him at this point, and for good reason. In Rodeo, 500 people protested against him moving to their area, and officers had to move him into a hotel room where he was protected by an armed guard. I think that really, if you're a police officer and you're having to guard this awful fucking mess of a human being, right. you'd be like, I'd be so tempted to be like, oops, I went for I a walk. I lost him. Oh, shit. When they tried to find him other housing, he was just met with more protests. They tried to move him to an apartment building, but they had to have armed guards escort him out after 400 people swarmed the building in protest. All of this outrage around it actually did lead to something pretty good happening. People clearly realized that someone like him should never have had such a short maximum sentence. Mary Vincent, hero that she is, helped support a legislation called Singleton's Bill. Singleton's Bill prevents the early release of offenders who have committed a crime that involves the torture of the victim. So now these type of crimes carry a 25 to life sentence. Right before he was paroled, Donald Stahl, the Stanislaus County prosecutor at Singleton's trial, said, I think, if anything, he's worse now. He has not taken responsibility. He lives in a bizarre fantasy land and acquits himself each day. He doesn't accept his guilt and won't resolve never to do it again. This wasn't like a Carla Faye Tucker situation. No one wanted this man released. Absolutely not. After finishing his parole, he moved down to Florida where he would find a far more sympathetic community, Orient Park. His new welcoming neighbors knew him as Bill. They seemed to believe his story and kind of fell for his other Larry story. This is just proof of how manipulative some people can be. He had so many of these people fooled. A couple of men in the community even saved his life when they found him attempting to kill himself using carbon monoxide fumes in his car. He was briefly committed to the St. Joseph Psychiatric Care Center, but released shortly after while waiting for a court hearing. In 1990, he was convicted of theft twice. The first time he served 60 days for stealing a $10 camera, and later that year, he got two years for stealing a $3 hat. Eight years for brutally raping a 15-year-old girl, hacking her arms off and leaving her for dead, and two years for stealing a $3 hat. Make it make sense. Like, please, make it make sense. When he was sentenced, he described himself as a confused, muddle-headed old man. I hate him. It's I so hate gross. him so much. So like, we do want to point out, like, he didn't actually serve two years. Yeah, he but didn't he, even yeah. serve the two years. Yeah, then right? Like, this man doesn't serve time. What are you talking oh about? My God. But he was still sentenced to it, which is just ridiculous. On February 19th, 1997, mother of three, Roxanne Hayes, would have the tragic luck of going home with Singleton. Roxanne Hayes was a woman who loved her children very much. She did whatever she could to provide for them. She was known as a friendly and loving woman, and the father of her children spoke about her in a way that described her as someone who would do anything for anyone. He talked about how she would jump into dumpsters to save kittens, and how she would lend money to anyone who needed the help. She was known by local police, and even they liked her. They described her as kind and funny, never violent. Even her social workers would consider her a friend. 
Roxanne was a 31-year-old sex worker who worked around the same park every day while her children were in daycare. She had agreed to go home with Lawrence for $20. Tampa Bay policeman Scott Bruce said, She was straight up about what she did. She was on the street for her kids. Bruce said that it was also unusual that a professional like Roxanne would go to a client's home. But another sex worker in the area suggested that the reason she might have been more at ease was... You don't think a 70-year-old man is going to stab you to death. And that was the other thing. We wanted... Like, he's 70 at this point. He is an old senior citizen. He's basically, like, senile and out of his mind at this point. I don't know if senile is the right word, but he was not in his right mind. No, he's just an evil, dirty, old, rotten, gross man. I couldn't have said it better myself. A house painter had returned to Lawrence Singleton's house after doing some work there around dinner time. As he entered the living room, he found Bill completely nude, viciously stabbing a naked woman. The painter immediately ran. By the time the painter was able to reach a phone and call 911, Singleton had stabbed Roxanne over a dozen times with a boning knife, once through her heart, several times through her face, chest, and stomach. Blood covered the living room. During the 911 call, the painter claimed that he could hear her bones crunching and breaking with every stab. Poor Roxanne had been on her way to buy groceries for her kids' dinner when Singleton had picked her up. When the police had arrived at Singleton's residence, he answered the door covered in blood. He explained to the officer that he'd cut himself chopping vegetables. When the phone rang, Singleton turned to answer it. That's when the police officer leaned into the door and saw Roxanne's body laying still on the living room floor. Singleton originally seemed to admit that he had actually done something wrong. They framed me the first time, but this time I did it. Singleton confessed as he was led away. However, by the time he was appointed a public defender, he changed his story and he pled not guilty at his arraignment. He tried to say that it was basically self-defense and all an accident. Singleton told jurors that he was depressed, drunk, and over-medicated when he decided to pick up Roxanne. He claimed that he was handing her money for a cab when she grabbed for his wallet. When he fought to get it back, she picked up a knife on the living room table. They struggled, and each time he pulled Roxanne's arm downward to get the knife away from her, she apparently stabbed herself, or so Singleton testified. Mary Vincent was there to testify once again. Despite the fact she was still terrified of Singleton, she agreed to be flown down to Florida to help remind the jury what an evil monster this man was. During her testimony, she described Singleton's attack on her and the toll the ordeal had taken on her. She went into great detail and described everything that he did to her again. We want to point out how horribly difficult this would have been for Mary. She had to relive everything all over again, be in court with him again, and just go through all of that trauma all over again. The worst part about it is when she was originally being attacked by him, she survived because she wanted to make sure he could never hurt anyone again. But she did survive, and the system failed both her and Roxanne in a terrible way. Lauren Singleton is someone who should not have been able to be around people ever again in his life. He expressed no remorse. He was beyond violent and willing to hurt anyone he felt like hurting. One of the daughters of Roxanne Hayes, who was in grade 7 when her mother was murdered, sat in court and bravely sat there while the photos of her mother's body were shown to the jury. It took the jury only four hours to come to a guilty verdict. Everyone seemed to agree, even the judge. This was an unprovoked, senseless killing of a human being. We are living in times worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, he said about the crime. Jurors convicted 70-year-old Singleton of first-degree murder and the death of Roxanne Hayes. They recommended the death penalty, and Judge Bob Mitchum agreed. When his sentence was passed down, Singleton appeared to show no emotion at all. 
Singleton would never make it to the execution chamber. He died in 2001 of cancer. He had never been set an execution date. And I don't know what's worse, the fact that, like, he got to kind of go out before he was executed, but, like, also he died of cancer, and I I hope it hurt. I hope however he died, he was alone and sad and in pain, and it was terrible, because, like, fuck this guy. Straight up. Yeah. He honestly deserved worse. (laughs) <laughs> There's a lot of people out there who believe that he had more victims. And if you think about it, it completely makes sense. Yeah. Someone like this doesn't usually just stop killing. It's hard to believe that something as brutal as the assault on Mary would have been his first attack. He was around 50-51 when he assaulted her, and he was 70 when he killed Roxanne. Also, it was the 70s, and like we all know about the serial killers that ran rampant throughout the 70s. If he was picking up hitchhikers and doing something like that to Mary, I have a very hard time believing he hadn't done something like this before because escalation is oh totally totally i mean and even his own daughter did say like he was vicious to her and her mom when they were together so like obviously like you say there is that escalation there he clearly hates women he's and he has no remorse he's still like you can't i i personally and i'm sure i'm curious to know what you guys listening think but i think that there were definitely more victims i yes absolutely. but today's episode is different and it doesn't end here with the death of this trash human being. No, it doesn't, because Mary Vincent is still out there, and we want to make sure we talk about her and who she is now. After her attack, Mary spoke out at many press conferences, and she made a point to talk to other teens about the dangers of hitchhiking. Like we said earlier, at the time, it was an incredibly common practice. She appeared on numerous talk shows and spoke about healing and how she was trying to move on with her life. She also wanted to make sure nothing like this could ever happen again. In 1998, Mary went to Washington to testify in favor of a bill called the No Second Chances for Murderers, Rapists, or Child Molesters Act. She again shared details of her attack and spoke about how if Singleton had been sentenced properly in the first place, that Roxanne Hayes would still be alive. Mary was now much older and was now the mother of two boys. She said, I have now obtained the long overdue psychological counseling to help me get over my nightmares and fear. Yet, sometimes, I still feel like that confused 15-year-old runaway trapped in the body of a 35-year-old mother of two. No one should ever have to go through what I went through or what the children of Roxanne Hayes will go through without their mother. And dear listeners, you're gonna hate this because the bill eventually died in Congress. (sighs) Good work, Congress. Mary Vincent also began to paint. Her grandfather was known for tinkering and making things, and with him in mind, she made herself her own prosthetics and was able to start painting. She fell in love with this and has since become a pretty accomplished painter. She was even able to design a custom piece for her arm so that she could go bowling. Her artwork often portrays powerful women. They are strong and look like they're ready to battle at any given moment. She paints family photos as well. She loves animals and keeps quite a few pets. I love her. Seriously, at one point, she had a pet parrot, too. And apparently it had some anger issues, and she liked that. I can heavily relate to all of (laughs) that. Oh, yeah, poor Mango. (laughs) But she's like, look... She's absolutely amazing. She sells her artwork, but also shares it at crime victims' events and has given many motivational speeches to large audiences. Her kids are adults now. At this point in her life, she prefers to stay out of the spotlight while still working on her art, and we honestly just have to say that we wish her all of the best things in life. Her story is so harrowing, and the turns it takes are incredibly disappointing. The justice system failed 
numerous times in this case, and this isn't the first or the last time that this is going to happen. What happened to Mary Vincent was beyond belief, but the fact that she found the power within herself not only to survive, but to be able to testify against him so many times is amazing. She has an inner strength that most people, I think, could only dream of I having. can barely even begin to fathom it, because this is just... She could have easily just been like, I don't want anything to do with this now. You guys yeah. messed this up. Too bad, so sad. But she's still out there fighting. She fought for a long time. She did. Mary has taken what happened to her and used it to inspire others and change many lives. Mary Vincent is and will always be an absolute badass in our eyes. That was tough. Yep. This is a hard case to talk about, but her story is one that has to be told. It's also proof, like we said before, that it's so important that the law is changed and adapted as needed. There is absolutely no reason on earth that a man who does something like this should be in a position where he can only be sentenced to 14 years, but also get out after eight for good behavior. I've said it before, and I'm, I've probably said it a couple of times on the podcast already, attempted murder and murder should be the same charge. Because the only reason you're not being charged with more is because you failed to kill the person you fully intended to kill. Yeah. You know, the intent is still there. So, yeah, but... Again, there's many frustrating lapses in the justice, well, so, the legal system. It's, it's a mess. There are some things that a human cannot come back from, and Lauren Singleton is proof that some people should just be locked away for all eternity. I completely agree. Yeah. Like, someone like him should, they, if, if you are like this, you shouldn't exist. And if you do exist, you shouldn't be around people literally ever. It Honestly, it just kind of... It's really put our Carla Faye Tucker yes. podcast what a difference, episode eh? into more perspective because she brutally murdered two people with a pickaxe. And so, you know, and she ended up spending the rest of her life in jail up to her execution. Whereas Lawrence, who did equally as brutal things, if not 10 times more brutal, if you can even quantify it, and he walked free. Yeah. So what's with that? It's just... Honestly, this this is one of those cases where it's just proof that life isn't fair and shitty things Sh happen. Shitty and things happen to good people and they good do. things happen to bad people. Yep, absolutely. It's, yeah, absolutely. It, it's one of those things that makes you appreciate the, the little kind things you have in your life. Right? This, I mean, this whole thing is just, I, I like I said, I wish her nothing but the best. Absolutely. I really do. Yeah. Uh, we hope that you guys enjoyed this week's episode. We really do. If you want to hear more survivor stories or you have someone that you want us to cover, uh, please comment below if you're watching on YouTube or email us at the grimcurriculum at gmail.com if you have any listener stories um and you want to email them to us we're totally open to that too we're thinking maybe of covering some of those at a later point yeah so we were kind of talking about this on twitter if you have like we want to hear about your paranormal experience specifically right now email us your stories yeah. let us know we'd love to chat with you about them and just put in like the subject line like my my story or my paranormal experience just so we can go back and search it but yeah the by most all means, with the most send them in, in. The subject line yeah okay that's it then if you're gonna send in a paranormal story for us to cover in a later episode Put in the subject line, the ghost with the most. I like, I like it. it. I like it too. That's perfect. 
Make sure you don't miss out on our other Grim Curriculum news by following us on Instagram at The Grim Curriculum and Grim Curriculum on Twitter. You can also find us on social media. I'm Dina V on Twitch, Dina V Tweets on Twitter, and Dina V IG on Instagram. And I'm Ominous underscore Walrus on Twitter and Ominous Walrus on Instagram. Join us every Saturday for a new episode. And we also do a live premiere on YouTube at 12 p.m. MST. So come hang out with us and discuss the case in real time. Thanks as always for listening. Listening, you guys. This has been the Grim Curriculum. curriculum.